This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. How you experience Antarctica really depends on the way that you get there. So my first um, voyage was with an icebreaker uh, from, from Hobart, and it takes about five or six days to get down to, to Casey Station from Hobart. That's our closest station. So it's not instantaneous, and you don't encounter Antarctica all at once. So first of all, you see your first iceberg, and that's incredibly exciting, and then you realise that was completely tiny compared to the ones that we'll, you'll encounter later. And then you see the sea ice and the penguins and the seals, and, and by the time you get to the actual continent, you're already immersed in this very different landscape. Uh, and that really contrasts with um, the experience of flying down, which I've also done. Um, I flew down, for example, from um, New Zealand to um, to Scott Base, and to do that, you get on a Globemaster or Hercules aeroplane, and you're completely enclosed for hours, maybe you know five hours, maybe eight hours, depending on what kind of plane. Uh, and you get out on this startlingly white ice plane in all directions, and it's a real shock. I think that's dislocating in a way that it's not if you arrive uh, by ship, which is so much slower. But either way, um, it's a completely enthralling place. And the, the main emotion that I remember being there is a kind of childlike glee. Um, I'm not a person who excites easily, but in Antarctica, I am. Because the ice scape is, is, is just so spectacular and just want to maximize every moment. You know, it, the rumours are true, it really is an astounding place um, and one that I feel incredibly lucky to, to have visited. So my name's uh, Elizabeth Lean, I tend to go by Ellie and I work at the University of Tasmania um, in, well, I work in the School of Humanities. I'm also the Associate Dean of Research in the College of Arts, Law and Education. And for a long time now, I've been working on the literature of Antarctica and the cultural history of Antarctica. Antarctica is a place I, for one, know very little about. And I don't think I'm alone. A continent that was only discovered two centuries ago, even if it had long been theorised. A place shrouded in mystery with no human history, no permanent residence. It's a land of superlatives. The coldest, the windiest, the driest continent. It's a grand scientific experiment, a vast habitat for animals with spectacular icecapes luring tourists and scientists alike. And it's somewhere that exists in the popular imagination in a multitude of ways, often in very confused ways, especially when it comes to the Arctic and the Antarctic, you know, all those polar bears and penguins hanging out together. It's also a place of contradictions, a serene, beautiful, white landscape on one hand, but also somewhere with a long tradition of gothic and horror stories set in and inspired by the continent. Alongside this, there are the heroic adventure tales from the early 20th century onwards, all types of thrillers, science fiction novels and crime and detective stories set in this enigmatic landscape. 
which is why I wanted to talk to Dr. Elizabeth Lean about lots of these stories. First, though, I wanted to understand how exactly Antarctica works. So, a fair while back, over a decade ago, I went to Ushuaia in Argentina. It's the capital of Tierra del Fuego and the southernmost city in the world. It's really close to Antarctica, or at least about as close as most people generally get. And I remember thinking two things at the time. One, how amazing would it be to go to Antarctica? Unfortunately, it was well beyond my backpacker budget. And two, what exactly is involved in going to Antarctica? Who lives there? Are there different enclaves claimed by different countries? Basically, how does Antarctica work? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, there are, there are two main ways to go to Antarctica. It's, it's interesting that it's the place that you have to go to. You have to occupy certain identities to go to Antarctica. And, and one of them, of course, is, is a tourist. That's probably um, the most straightforward way. Uh, and that means that you have to travel with a commercial operator almost always. Um, last season, there was about 70,000 people who, who visited Antarctica um, in that way. Of course, this season, there's going to be almost none. Um, because of COVID. But that means that you have a very curated experience of the continent, generally speaking. You go on a certain itinerary, you walk in roped off areas, you don't tend to visit bases, you look at animals and so forth. Uh, And the second big category that you can go in is as a worker. uh, And in that case, you have to go via a national program. And um, I I use the word worker to cover a whole range of different uh, occupations. So scientists are the most obvious people who travel to Antarctica, but actually there's more support personnel, tradespeople, uh, cooks, cleaners, field officers, doctors, um, all go to Antarctica to support uh, the scientific presence. And you get people like artists and writers on residencies, but they are all essentially going in some kind of professional capacity with a national program. So unless you're going as a tourist, you're going to have to convince a national program that you need to go to Antarctica. If you're not a scientist or a support worker, then you might be able to get onto a residency program as an artist or writer or in another creative field. But as you can imagine, these are not exactly easy programs to get into. If you do, though, you'll most likely stay on a base, one of a small number of permanent structures in Antarctica. About 40 countries or so have bases of varying sizes all across the continent, mostly along the coastal areas. Ireland, alas, does not have one. Um, If you go somewhere like Casey Station, um, that's Australia Station, it's not very big. It looks like a small mining camp, really, with lots of shipping containers and uh, fairly uh, functional-looking buildings. If you go somewhere like um, Ross Island, I went to Scott Base there, that's also the um, location of... McMurdo Station, which is the biggest US station, and they'll have about a thousand people there in summer. So it's like a little a little settlement, really. Oh, it's not got restaurants, but it's got you know a big eating place. It's got a chapel. You know, you can wander around it. You can wander from Scott Base to McMurdo. So it's got more of a sense there of, of people, you know, of actual settlement. But um, a lot of the bases are very isolated and quite small. The comparisons between some of these bases and, say, moon bases or other similar habitations from science fact and science fiction seem pretty clear. And actually, NASA and others have used Antarctica as a stand-in for Mars, looking at how people survive in confined, extreme, isolated spaces. 
But of course then, you can't just lump all of these different bases and all of these different parts of Antarctica into one whole. It really depends where you are. And this is something that I try and get across in my research is that it's, it's not, you know, it's a continent. So it's big. For example, earlier this year, I went down to the Antarctic Peninsula, which is sometimes called the Riviera of Antarctica because it's, it's much more northern and it's much milder. So I was staying on King George Island and the temperature never got below freezing. It would have been about um, what it is for you now in Ireland. In, um, I was in, uh, down at Ross Island, which is a lot further south uh, in February a couple of years ago. You know, it, temperature sort of minus 10, minus 20 but if you go to somewhere like the Pole, then you're looking at an average temperature around minus 50. It can get as low as minus 80 degrees Celsius in the South Pole. This is kind of unimaginably cold, like not just uncomfortable, but painfully cold, where any exposed skin will get frostbite in minutes. You can see these great videos online in about like minus 40 degrees or so, where if you throw a cup of boiling water into the air, it just instantly turns into snow. So, you know, this is, this is pretty cold. So we know all of this now about the temperatures, about what it's like at the South Pole, what the continent really looks like, its geography, ecology, and lots more. But all of this is, is very recent, mostly really from the early 20th century onwards. The first recorded sighting of the continent was exactly 200 years ago in 1820. But long, long before this, the idea of a southern continent was alive in myths and stories. There have been human communities living in the far southern parts of the world, uh, for a long time in places like Tierra del Fuego um, in um, New Zealand, here in Tasmania. Uh, and those communities did have myths uh, relating to um, that part of the uh, the world because, of course, those far southern regions um, experience the far south through the weather, you know, through the wind and through the cold and through the ocean, through the migrating animals and through the southern lights. So those connections do enter into their cultures, but they – they were oral cultures, so we have, um, you know, less uh, remaining from from those myths. In the northern hemisphere, the Antarctic had been theorised for a very long time, going right back to classical times. It was the Antarctic, the opposite of the Arctic. So it was assumed to be cold, like its northern counterpart. But no one really had any clue what a southern continent might look like, its size or geography, whether there might be lots of islands or a sea, maybe. And then over the years, a lot of myths become attached to the poles themselves, both the north and the south. Uh, you get things like um, whirlpools thought to be at the poles or big magnetic mountains or holes where you can access the Earth's interior. And that speaks to the whole sort of hollow Earth tradition. Um, and I think the governing idea here is that people wanted there to be some kind of spectacular marker at the pole, that it shouldn't just be a blank. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. There should be something spectacular at the North and South Pole. It's only fair if you manage to get all the way there. And they thought that poles, the poles were places that really lured you in, that kind of drew you even against your will, the way that a, a magnet might or, or a whirlpool, or that the poles offered some kind of passage to another existence, you know, whether that was the interior of the Earth or or to outer space, or to just some kind of other mode of being. So you get all these myths circulating. Hollow Earth Novels, incidentally, is the topic of a bonus episode that you can get by signing up to support the show. Just throwing that out there. So Antarctica started showing up in fiction. All sorts of science fiction, adventure tales, and travel narratives, but especially in gothic and horror. Um, critics sometimes talk about there being a subgenre of the polar gothic or, or, or the Antarctic gothic. 
Uh, and it goes right back to um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, not popular fiction, but certainly taking advantage of the craze, the popular craze for the Gothic at the time. Uh, and Coleridge sets that poem, or the first part of that poem, really deliberately in Antarctica. And now there came both mist and snow, and it grew wondrous cold, and ice mast high came floating by as green as emerald. And through the drifts the snowy cliffs did send a dismal sheen, nor shapes of men nor beasts we ken, the ice was all between. He'd never travelled outside of Britain when he wrote it. The Arctic would have seemed a lot more obvious setting if he wanted a polar setting. But clearly he wanted a place that was remote. He wanted a place that seemed sort of inverted. In mist or cloud, on mast or shroud, it perched for Vesper's nine. Was all the night through fog smoke white, glimmered the white moonshine. God save the ancient mariner from the fiends that plague thee thus. Why lookst thou so? With my crossbow, I shot the albatross. So people in the northern hemisphere sense that the the far south is kind of on the the, the bottom of the earth has this sense of of being um, a kind of underworld, I suppose, uh, for for people in the north. Um, so you get that poem in I think what is it 1798, and then um, Mary Shelley draws on that poem in Frankenstein, which is set in the Arctic. But you get that kind of Gothic cross polar connection going. And the next um, the next big name is Edgar Allan Poe. Who, who set a short story there involving a whirlpool at the South Pole and set his only novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket in Antarctica as well. So this was the 19th century. As you move into the early 20th century, you get the science fiction and weird tales of the pulp magazines. Maybe there's some sort of ancient alien horror buried in the frozen Antarctic depths. H.B. Lovecraft's great story at the Mountains of Madness from 1936 looks exactly at this. In typical Lovecraftian fashion, there are unspeakably ancient and unfathomable beings frozen in the ice who should never be awakened from their slumber. Uh, And an even more influential uh, example is a short story that came out a couple of years later um, called Who Goes There by by John W. Campbell, who's a very well-known pulp science fiction writer and editor. And in that story, a group of uh, American expeditioners dig up and defrost an alien. They find this frozen alien spacecraft. They take out the frozen alien, which they think is dead. But when it defrosts in their base, it it comes alive unbeknownst to them. And one by one, it attacks them and impersonates them perfectly so that there are these aliens walking around the base alongside the humans without anybody knowing who is who. And you get this sense of paranoia and and suspicion and and claustrophobia uh, in that base. And then that becomes the the basis for a series of films, um, including The Thing from from 1982, and you have this, this very strong horror tradition. And then you have the adventure novels, the tales of heroic explorers, both real and imaginary. The early 20th century was the so-called heroic age of polar exploration, with explorers vying to be the first to reach both the North and South Poles. Their exploits were covered in newspapers, scientific journals, and in both fictional and non-fictional form all across the world. In an Irish context, many people will be familiar with Ernest Shackleton and Tom Crean. I'm pretty sure I had a Tom Crean beer at some point recently. Anyway, so both of these men were involved in a number of Antarctic expeditions, beginning in 1901. 
multiple expeditions set out in the 1900s until, in March 1912, the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen arrived in Tasmania and announced to the world that he had reached the South Pole three months previously, the first person ever to do so. He had beaten the British explorer Robert Falcon Scott by just five weeks. Highlighting the huge dangers involved in these expeditions, Scott and his party all died on their return journey from the Pole. And these explorers were shaping and shaped by the popular fiction of the time. So, you know, Antarctica is being discovered at the same time that popular fiction is really coming into its own, you know, with the printing, the cheap printing and so forth in the, in the late 19th century. And so the explorers that go to Antarctica around the turn of the 20th century have been brought up on this diet of colonial adventure fiction. So in a sense, the fiction is shaping in a way the interactions with the continents and you know, the explorers take down big libraries of, of books, which include popular fiction. And some of them, like Scott's first expedition, actually took that Jules Verne novel, An Antarctic Mystery, with it. So they're reading Antarctic fiction in Antarctica as they're exploring it for the first time. And sometimes they're even writing it. So you have this strong colonial context here. These are explorers claiming and naming new lands for the empires they represented. And they were filling in the last truly blank spaces on the map. I mean, there was at this point very little else in the world that hadn't been mapped and catalogued by the various geographic societies and other scientific bodies. Antarctica was also one of the last places you could vaguely plausibly set a lost world story. I've talked about lost world stories on this show before. You know, where the protagonist goes and encounters a world or a people that seemingly have been lost in time. So you get, you get dinosaurs, you get Neanderthals, you get ancient Greeks, you get medieval Europeans all encountered in Antarctica. They've been living there, cut off from everybody for centuries. So I want to take a quick break to talk to you about two things. The first is the sponsor of this week's episode, which is the podcast 180 Degrees. So this is a great show. It's brought to you by the SEAI, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, and it looks at all things sustainability, like... Why is my house so cold? My house is freezing because it's just not very well insulated. And you can listen to stories of people who've had their house retrofitted and they just swan around in their shorts and T-shirts in the middle of December and it costs them nothing to heat their house and it sounds amazing. So they look at things like this about um, electric vehicles. So, you know, should you be driving one if you want to? What should you do? So they look at all sorts of things like this and lots more and they share the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. So that's 180 Degrees. It's brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. The second thing is that this podcast is, as you know, part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. And there are lots of other great shows for you to check out. One of those is Pod Rooney from Joe Rooney, who I'm sure you know. He is one of Ireland's most recognisable comedians, part of Ireland's oldest comedy improv group. And as an actor, he starred in all sorts of things. Obviously, Father Damo in Father Ted, as well as being in Killing the Scully and Red Rock and lots of other stuff. So in the podcast, he chats with comedians, actors, with musicians and all sorts of other people. And there are loads of back episodes to have a listen to. So check it out. Hello, Joe Rooney here. Back in 2015, I recorded my first Potter Rooney. And since then, I've been chatting to people that I meet throughout my travels here and there all over the world, including Sean Locke, Mary Coughlin, Frank Kelly, Joanne McAnally, Owen Colgan, Shazia Mertza, Aidan Gillen and Kocha Reardon. But loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell. 
including the sadly no longer with us Boston-based comedian Barry Crimmins, who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet, Tracy Carroll, whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy, Drada Homeless Aid, Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer-documentary maker who ended up hanging out with the young lads in Nursery Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell, and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish. That's Potteroni. Back to the show. So Antarctica is geographically cut off from the rest of the world. There's a spatial disconnect. But there's also all sorts of things going on with time. First off, there are all those frozen people, or aliens, a type of cryogenic time travel. There are lots of pulp tales of frozen Neanderthals and lost races of people reawakening in modern times. There's a novel that really brought this home to me, um, which has got the improbable improbable title of The Frozen Pirate, uh, which was by um, William Clark Russell, who I think wrote nautical horrors. I haven't read any others, I have to admit. Um, That comes from the late um, 19th century. And so what happens in that novel is there's a, a shipwreck and the protagonist uh, finds himself on an iceberg and encased in that iceberg is an 18th century pirate ship with frozen pirates in it. And he um, he starts a fire and one of them defrosts and, of course, comes to life. And from that pirate's perspective, half a century has passed by without him realising. So he is effectively a time traveller. And then you've got the fact that our bodies get very confused by the passage of time in Antarctica. Not so much on the on the coast, but once you go into the interior, you know, you get um, a day being stretched out to, at the pole, a, a year, you know, where you get essentially, you know, six months of night and six months of day, although it's got twilight in between, so it's not quite that stark. But, um, you know, you get that very odd sense of, of time and it's light when it should be dark and it's dark when it should be light. Um, a lot of popular fiction gets the details wrong uh, around around that. But um, thematically, I think what it suggests is a disorientation in time. And, and it is a bit of a strange feeling. And, it, you know, when you go to Antarctica, you're in danger of, I mean, people are in danger of just not getting any sleep because their body's telling them to stay up. It's such an exciting ex- experience and people just tend to, to get far too little sleep. Something that many novelists have drawn on to create tension for thrillers or particularly for crime and detective stories. There are today lots of writers using Antarctica in their fiction, some of whom have visited or perhaps been part of a residency, many others who just researched the location like they would any other. But writing about the continent does present certain unusual challenges. Because there's no real settlements in Antarctica, no families, I mean there are there are bases that do host families, but in general there aren't any any families, there's no old people, there's no young people, there's no generations. So there's just certain things that you can't write. You know, there's, you can't write Bildungsromans, you can't write family sagas. You're, you're kind of fixed to a certain plot line because, you know, it's always a journey. You always have to travel to get to Antarctica. You always have to return. And that really circumscribes, I think, um, the kinds of stories that can be told. There are plenty of eco-thrillers set in Antarctica, and the importance of the continent in our study and understanding of climate change is a key part of this. Science fiction and post-apocalyptic fiction are very common too. One that I'm thinking of here that I found interesting um, was a novel by uh, Paul McCauley, the science fiction writer called Austral. Um, that was set in a on the Antarctic Peninsula, but a warmer Antarctic Peninsula that's been colonised. And I felt like it had a really interesting story world and imagined that world 
in really interesting ways. Uh, that tourist experience is certainly something that people are writing about more. And what I'm thinking about here, Ilya Troyanov's uh, Lamentations of Zeno, which was originally published in German, was called Eistau in German. Um, but that is a novel told from the perspective of a, an Antarctic tourist guide who's also a glaciologist and is devastated by what's happening to the ice and takes really radical action um, to protect it. So you get a lot of those future-looking novels thinking about what might happen to the Antarctica um, down the track. Or if you want to stick to the Gothic. And a really good one that I read from a few years ago is called Everland by Rebecca Hunt. And if you're looking for a contemporary Gothic novel about Antarctica, that's the one I'd recommend. It's incredibly creepy, um, while also dealing with that exploration uh, history. So some of the themes are the same, but I think um, the challenges are new and that writers are, are stepping up to them. Ultimately, there's no such thing really as Antarctic fiction. Firstly, there's just so much different fiction about the continent in so many different genres that there's very little to connect it all together. And in any case, it's a continent. It's huge. There are so many ways to experience it, so many ideas to take from it. But there are certain aspects that emerge again and again. It's cold, for the most part. It's isolated. It's set apart from the rest of the world. It is, by all accounts, an utterly spectacular place like no other. And there's always a journey. You or your characters, perhaps, have to go there. And crucially, you have to return. Nobody lives in Antarctica permanently. And those journeys have certainly made for some fascinating works of fiction. With sloping masts and dipping prows, who pursued with yell and blow still treads the shadow of his foe and forward bends his head, the ship drove fast, loud roared the blast, and southward I we fled. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. Most people put out a Christmas episode at Christmas. I have one about a place that's very snowy, so, you know, close enough. Special thanks to my wonderful guest this week, Dr. Elizabeth Lean. I've put links to her, to her work on the website. She has written so much stuff about Antarctica's amazing work, so go check it out. The links are at wttepodcast.com. And there you can also find full transcripts of this episode. There's a list of all the books mentioned, and there are quite a few this week. And there's also links and pictures and lots, lots more. You can follow the show at Words to That Effect on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm on Twitter at CEDREAD, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. So happy Christmas. Take care. And thank you for listening to this episode, for listening to previous episodes or any of the episodes this year. It's just such a lovely feeling to see the numbers grow, to see people coming to listen to the show. It's just always fantastic. It's such a nice feeling. I'll be back in 2021. I am taking an extra week off, so it'll be mid-January before the next episode, number 49. I'll see you soon. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.